Good morning, North Boulevard. Those of you watching us online, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We're glad you're here. I'm a little sad because we're finishing this series on This Is My Story, and I've really enjoyed sort of walking back through the biblical story and making sure that we know that this is the only story worth living. This is your story. I'm really glad you chose to join us this morning. Uh, and uh, those of you who are here, thanks for indulging us with the masks. We had a great first service outdoors. And um, I don't know how many, maybe five or 600 people were here, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. The West Campus and this, uh, all the campuses meeting today at some point or another. And uh, I know we're all eager to get back to normal. As soon as we can, we shall. So I'm glad you're here. Uh, in 1993, we became uh, pregnant, Julie and I did, and I want to talk to you today just a little bit about what it's like to be pregnant. And here to help me is Julie, because I don't mind telling you, I really didn't know a whole lot about it, but you have had ex the <laughs> So, Rachel was born on July the 11th, 1994, our first baby. And uh, just, just for a moment, I want all of you to think, uh, by the way, just first thing I want to say is that I remember that only a few years ago, you couldn't say the word pregnant in church. You're supposed to say expecting, but the Bible uses the words. So I think we're okay using it. And it really did happen to you. You actually did get pregnant. And I want you to think for a moment about pregnancy. I know that's odd. I'm going to show you why in a minute, but think about pregnancy. Let me ask Julie a question or two. First of all, here's my big question. What did you think about when you were pregnant with Rachel? It's all about the baby. It's all about and the baby. And I was so happy, 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 happy to be pregnant with Rachel. Uh, we had waited 10 years. And when I found out I was expecting, I literally rolled all the windows down in my vehicle and screamed out the windows, I'm pregnant! I'm pregnant! So, and people in the street looked at me like, oh, crazy lady's pregnant. <laughs> what, one of my memories is that almost like pretty much every day you would go in the bathroom and stand in front of the mirror and just stare at yourself. I don't remember that. You did. I saw you do it. <laughs> I'm not making this up just for the sermon. But it, like we just watched that thing, you know. Yeah, it happened. So, okay, what did we do to prepare for the birth of the daughter? Nine months you got to prepare. What kinds of things did we do? We bought a baby bed, and we decorated the nursery Noah's Ark, because that was really in right then. Um, we got the monitor. We got the car seat. We got the high chair. We got everything. And um, this was before you could have video monitors. They weren't there yet. Um, we just had the listen kind of monitors. And David likes to be super prepared. So he took that monitor, he tried it like 800 feet, a mile, you know, uh, doing the mowing the lawn. Can we still hear the mo monitor? And the first night she was home, he had rigged the monitor to our headboard. So we could not hear. We could hear anything that happened, and our bedroom was right there. Her nursery was right there. <laughs> when she cried, <laughs> there was no trouble hearing her. We didn't even need that monitor. Rachel never cried. She was well. The she cried when child. she got hungry. She <laughs> cried when she so had we, to do other things. So here's the point. The point is when you're expecting. You read all the books. You I read the all the, the what all to expect sort of when you're expecting. What do you think about when you're expecting? Say it again. 
It's all about the baby with the first baby. <laughs> uh, Rach was nine months pregnant when we got pregnant with John. And during that pregnancy, all I thought about was, will I survive this? Because I was throwing up every day while tracing another baby around. So, okay. so I pretty much thought about, am I going to live through this? I like the first answer. It really helped the sermon a lot better. What did you think about when you were pregnant? The answer is, it's all about not throwing up the baby <laughs> the baby give her a round of applause and move her along here thank you no i'll just stay i'll just stay i yeah. think i could help oh, you might help can. some more yeah. maybe so just uh turn the mic off on your way down <laughs> okay you're asking yourself the question why why would we spend time on pregnancy and here is the answer it is found in romans chapter 8 verses 22 through 24, Paul actually talks about the creation as pregnancy. In fact, I want to say this. We're reaching lesson number 10. You see the garden? We're reaching lesson number 10. And what you need to know is that we're at the moment of a universe that is pregnant with the second coming of Jesus. That's Paul's language. He says in Romans chapter 8, we know that the whole creation has been groaning but this is the nice way to translate it. But literally what he says is, the whole creation is groaning in pregnancy. Right up to the present time. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We are groaning inwardly as we await our adoption to sonship the redemption of our bodies. In this entire series, we're trying to repeat, tell the story that is the only story that matters. It's our story. It's the story of us. It's the story God gave us, the story He wants us to live by, the story in which you find yourself. And in this story, we are finally at the end of chapter 9, and there are only 10 chapters. I want to make sure you know that. We are at the end of chapter 9, and there are only 10 chapters. And in this chapter, the ninth chapter of our story, the only story that matters, the entire universe is pregnant, expecting the second coming of Jesus. That's biblical language. It's a biblical metaphor that we're waiting for the universe to give birth to something brand new. Paul says it will be the redemption of our bodies, Philippians chapter 3, where he says, since the whole universe is pregnant and our citizenship is in the new heaven, what's about to come, we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will become like his glorious body. We spent time talking about this. Chapter 9, we're just around the corner from chapter 10. The end is just about to happen. Imagine this, for all of history, not just human history, but all of history has been pointed towards the moment that we get to see. I want to summarize for just a moment how the story ends. And I do want to say that the Bible has a very rich, what's called eschatology, that's study of the last times, the story of the last times, much richer than we can really even effectively summarize in a short sermon. But I'm going to give it an effort because we need to know at least a little bit, the skeleton, if you will, or the framework around which 
time will end as we know it, and chapter 10 will begin. And chapter 10, by the way, never ends. It's an eternal chapter. So let me start by using an illustration that I've used before. Each one of us created in the image of God stumbles into sin. And because we stumble into sin, we've been banished from the Garden of Eden where there was the tree of life. So long as we were in the garden, we could continue to eat from the tree of life. We lived forever. Call it eternal life or maybe better even perennial life. But once we stumbled, once each of us threw garbage into the water from which we must all drink, when each of us separated ourselves from God, we were thrown out of the garden and we faced the penalty of death. So we live, but as the Ecclesiastes writer notes, we also die. And when we die, the way the Bible describes it, we actually have the bodies buried in a grave and the soul goes to be with the Lord. And I just want to talk about this for half a second because I want to make sure that we fully understand the biblical narrative of the end of time. Here's why it matters. So many of us have been given a truncated, abbreviated version of the end of time that is so short that I'm afraid it's almost dishonest. You know, if you condense a book enough, it's no longer the book. And here's the truncated gospel many of us have heard. Jesus came, died for my sins, I get forgiven, and when I die, I go to heaven. If that sounds familiar, it's because that's the truncated gospel that many of us have heard. That's not really the full story of how time will end. Instead, the way the Bible describes it is, when we die, the body goes into the grave. But the soul goes into a place that the Bible variously calls Hades or Tartarus or Torment or Abraham's bosom or paradise, various names for it. In fact, let me give you one text that will help you think about this. It is Luke chapter 16. In Luke chapter 16, the rich man and the Lazarus both died. Lazarus is a poor beggar who evidently pleases God through his righteous living. The rich man, because of his greed and his selfishness and his uh, lack of concern for a suffering man at his own doorstep, he dies, and the Bible says that Lazarus, when he dies, goes to a place called Abraham's side. That's a way of saying he goes to be with all the faithful people throughout history. And by the way, he goes immediately upon his death. Meanwhile, the rich man goes to a place that the Bible calls torment immediately upon his death. And it's important to note that in Luke chapter 16, time is still going on. That is, we're still living when all of this is happening. What I want you to know is... Those that you love who have died are already in some place of waiting. They're either with Abraham and all the righteous who've ever lived, or they're in a place of torment. And it helps me to think that way because uh, when my mother passed away in 2002, sometimes I wonder, does she see me? I mean, do you think about that? Does she see me? Does she, I wonder if she's proud of me. I mean, I don't know why that matters to me, but it does. I want my mama to be proud of me. I hope she's okay with what I'm doing. We have people who have lost husbands right here, have lost wives. Some of you, God bless you, have lost your own children. And how many of us have lost parents? And just this week, a lifelong member of North Boulevard, Gene Sloan, Gene 90 years old. He was here last Sunday. He was sitting in the auditorium last Sunday. Gene went home on Sunday, and Monday he didn't feel too well, and Tuesday morning his family went to check on him, and he had passed away. By the way, the family told me that when they found him, 
I can barely say this without choking up. Gene, by the way, a brilliant man of God, but brilliant. When they found him, he was lying next to an open Bible, open at Psalm 23. And the Bible says Gene has already gone to Abraham's side where all the faithful are. I've thought about Gene and I, I started looking at obituaries online from, from Woodfin's funeral home here in Murfreesboro. I didn't do it morbidly, but I, just, I was just looking for you know, connections and so forth. And it just dawned on me, 28 years I've been somehow connected to North Boulevard and how many people we've had to say goodbye to. And sometimes it, it can... It can be sad, but other times it just reminds me, we stand, North Boulevard's healthy, it's a, you're an amazing church. Never forget we stand on the shoulders of faithful giants who paved the way for us. And many of them are in Abraham's bosom right now. When we die, the body goes into the ground. The soul goes to be with the Lord, but it doesn't end there. So I've arranged this chart. It's, it's a little simplistic. It may be so simplistic as also to be a little misleading. It's the best I can do on one sheet of paper. So the body either goes, the body goes to the ground, the soul either goes to heaven, also called paradise, or to torment, also called a place of shame. But here's the deal. It doesn't end there. Because there's a great day coming, a day of resurrection. On the day of resurrection, every single body will be raised out of, the, out of the grave. I want to make sure we get this. In the Bible, the doctrine is not immortality of the soul. It's not just that your soul never dies. In the Bible, what happens is the soul and a new body are joined together. The body is raised up. Remind yourself, the soul never dies. It doesn't have to be resurrected. It never died. It's the body that died. And this matters because body are important. Your body is not a prison for your soul. Your body is an integral part of who God made you to be. And at the resurrection, we get new bodies. These bodies won't have bad knees. They won't be ugly. They won't have acne. These bodies will be great. They'll be like Jesus's body. Here's how Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise. And then he says, those of us who are still around will be caught up together in the air with them, and so we shall be with the Lord forever. What the Bible teaches is that God will reconstitute the bodies, not this old broken body, but a new body. Paul calls it a celestial body in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But make no mistake about it, we are whole people when Jesus returns, not just spirits, whole people, because God wants to redeem the whole creation. Having a body was not an accident. It was part of the original plan. And so he raises our bodies, new bodies, bodies that never get sick, bodies that don't, you don't have to have tears in the new body. That body doesn't grow old and that body won't get, die, it won't die. It won't go to funerals. Not that body. After the resurrection, the Bible teaches as a great day of judgment. Maybe we should call it a day of sentencing because the truth is you are judging yourself right now. The life you choose to live is already determining your judgment. So if a person were to go out and rob a convenience store, before that person ever stands before a judge, he's already guilty. The judge merely sentences him. And in the same way, what the Bible says is that upon the day of resurrection, 
Here's how John, it's, it, by the way, it's, it's, it's mentioned many times in the Bible. Here's just one text, Revelation 20, verse 12. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, recorded in the books. Here's what happens. When Jesus returns, the bodies of every single person will be raised from the dead, good and bad reunited with a soul to stand before the judgment bar of God where he will pronounce our sentence based on the life we chose. And I just want to make sure we understand. Those who have loved the Lord will get eternity with the Lord, which is fair and just. Those who go to hell won't be surprised. I just want to make sure you know that. Nobody in hell is surprised that they're there. Dante Alighieri I don't know, you know, Milton's Paradise Lost and all the, 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 all the medieval image of hell as a place, you know, of crackling flames and everybody's surprised they went there. It's not a biblical image. Here's what happens. God, in hell, God merely gives you the life you wanted all along. That's what hell is. You want a life without God? You want a life without rules? You want a life where you get to do whatever you want to do? That's what hell is. God says, fine, you can have it. You like living with maggots? There's a trash pile right over there. Jesus puts it this way in John chapter 5, verse 28. He says, a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to life. Those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. So what happens is we are raised from the dead. We stand before the sentencing judgment bar of God. And some get life and others are raised. Well, the biblical word is hell. Maybe one way to think about it as Hell was just a valley outside of Jerusalem originally. It was the garbage heap. It was Mount Trashmore, we would say. Jesus says, it's where the maggots are. It's where they're always burning things. You want a life without God? There it is. But I want you to see this. When Jesus returns, he restores the created order. And this is something that's so beautiful that's so easily missed in that flattened truncated version of the end of time that you're not condemned because I would consider this a bad thing to being only a spirit who sits on a cloud and plays a harp in a church service that never ends is that sound like heaven to you no what God does is he restores creation the garden is back revelation describes the nations bringing their treasures into this new place there are animals. When we, when we are raised from the dead, your dog's going to be there. Are there dogs in heaven? Yep, there are. There are cats in heaven. In fact, the way the Bible describes it, lions and lambs will lie down together. Children will be playing with snakes. It is the created order. It's the Garden of Eden the way it was always supposed to be. God is at work restoring his good creation because he's not going to lose that which he called good. Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, prepared like a bride, dressed for her husband. Here we go. I heard a loud voice from the throne. God's dwelling place from now on will be with us. We will be his people. He himself will live with us. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, crying, or pain. The old order will have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne says, 
I make all things new. Write this down. I'm trying to tell you that the last chapter is just about to be written. The universe is pregnant with the end of time. And the Alpha Omega says, put it in the bank. It's done. I'm the beginning. I'm the end. Amen. Guys, this is our story. Our story is from garden to garden. Our story is how we were created to live. Death is not a natural thing. I know at funerals people say they look so natural when they're looking in their coffin. If you've ever said that, don't worry, I'm not knocking on you. I'm not picking on you. Your sentiment is the right sentiment. But I just want to say this. No, they're not. That is not natural. We were not designed to die. We weren't supposed to be in caskets. We were supposed to live. We were created to live. We were created to flourish. We were created to thrive. We were created to have constant communion with our God. That's still in our genetic makeup. It's still in our DNA. This longing for a utopia where we're always with God, where there is no more pain and no more weeds, where there are no more thorns and thistles, where there's no more suffering, that's in our DNA. And so what God does is he says, I started you in a garden, you left it, but I'm going to get you back. So it's not an accident that when the Bible is talking about the end of time, it uses the language of a garden. Here it is in Revelation 22, the very last chapter of the Bible. The opening chapters of the Bible, we start in a garden, and the last chapter of the Bible, we end in a garden. I hope you get that. That's your story. Notice it's a garden, but it's in the middle of a city, and the Bible says a city is, oh my goodness, the city is 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles wide, and 1,400 miles tall. And right in the middle of the city, listen to this, the angel showed me. The river, the water of life is clear as crystal flowing down from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the main street. And on each side of the river, look, the garden's back. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. We're back. That's chapter 10. Our created order, our universe is pregnant with the last garden. It's about to come. Can I remind you of our story? Indeed, we started in a garden. Remember, we said this. God created a universe that may well be 100 billion light years across. It's unfathomable. And he created it for one reason. You listening? So he could love you. All of this, so he could have someone to love. The same reason we have babies so we can have someone to love. He created us and he placed us in a garden where there was no pain and suffering, where there was flourishing, but we rebelled against him. We made ourselves God, and when we did, we broke communion. But you know that your story is a love story. It is a cosmic love story because the whole point of the Bible is to say God loves us too much to let us go. 
So he began a long process of bringing us back. He called a Bronze Age man by the name of Abe, Abram, and he said, I'm going to call you Abraham, which means from now on you're going to be the father of many faithful people. God calls Abraham to live by faith so you and I would understand how much faith in God matters. Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, were given the moral code of the Ten Commandments. They were shown this is what you're supposed to look like. That's what the Ten Commandments are for. This is how I expected humans to live. But as you know, the Jews were not consistent in their life. And so they were sent into exile. Don't blame them. Which of us can say we've lived consistent with the will of God? But even in exile, God says, I'm not done with them. And so in his own person, God becomes Jesus Christ incarnate, walks among us to say, let me show you. And this is what the life of Jesus is about. Let me show you how I want you to live. If you want to know how you live, look at Jesus. He didn't just come to die. He came to live. Remember, God didn't create us to die. He created us to live. Jesus came to live. But because our sin had been such an affront to God and because God is a just God who must punish sins in order to remain just, we had a price to pay. But because God's a loving God, he said, let me take your price on my own shoulders. So he took our penalty in his death. But in his life, he gave us victory. In his life, he showed us that everything that ever stood between us and God has now been conquered. Sin has been conquered. Futility has been conquered. Separation from God has been conquered. And even death now has been conquered. And so he has said to us as his people, from this point forward, you are to be a counter-cultural outpost of heaven. Our job as Christians today, chapter 9 in the story, we're in chapter 9. Chapter 9 of the story, our job is to show the whole world this is how God expected us to live. and This is how we're going to live when Jesus brings the new creation. That's our job. That's why we do the weird things we do. That's why we turn the cheek when we're hit. Because there won't be any violence when Jesus comes back. That's why we're willing to suffer to do the right thing even when the whole world is going the wrong direction. Because when Jesus comes back, there won't be any wrong permitted. We live now as an outpost of the way it soon shall be. Chapter 10 is just about to dawn. And chapter 10, it's a garden. The Bible describes it variously. The Bible says about it that it's a wedding. Matthew 25, the first few verses. The, the second coming will be like a wedding. Imagine a groom and a bride coming down, the beauty, the flowers, the music, the smells, the outfits. The Bible describes the second coming of Jesus like an accounting at the end of the year. Same chapter, 25, Matthew, where Jesus says, I've given some this, this number of money, this, some this money, this, some this money, but when I return, I'm going to take an accounting of what you did with the things I entrusted with you. And then even the same chapter, Jesus goes on to talk about it like shepherding. At the end of time, he says, I'm going to call all the nations in like, like a farmer would call in all the cattle, we would say. They would say sheep. In Matthew 19 and verse 28, Jesus talks about his return. He uses a fascinating Greek word. He says, when he comes back, Jesus says, we'll be sitting on thrones. 
But the phrase come back there is in Greek. I'm going to say it in Greek. If you listen closely, you'll actually know what it means, even if you don't know Greek. Palingenesis. Literally, he says, I'm going to bring a second book of Genesis. Literally, Jesus says, I'm, going to, I'm starting Genesis all over again when I come back. In Acts chapter 3, Peter is preaching a sermon. He says, repent so you receive refreshment from God. And then he says, because God is going to restore all things. The narrative of the Bible is that God is in the process of winning back the entire creation. From garden to garden. And maybe this is our, for many of us, our favorite metaphor. The King James said, in my father's house are many mansions. It's a French term that actually doesn't mean what we, mansion for us is a huge house. When the King James was translated, mansion just meant a room. So the more modern translations say, my father's house has many rooms. Let me put it this way. The promise of Jesus is that there's going to be an awesome homecoming and creation is pregnant with it right now. The homecoming's about to happen. We're about to be back with those that we've lost. God's about to bring us all together with the greatest men and women of faith throughout history. Maybe one reason why the idea of John 14 in my father's house are many rooms. Maybe one reason why it resonates so strongly with us, why it's used at so many funerals, is because every human being, believer or non, knows that we're missing our home. We're all yearning for a home. We were created for a home with God. And humanity has wandered for centuries. And when Jesus returns, he's bringing us home. Chapter 10 is home. And we're towards the end of chapter 9, my friends. And let me tell you something. When we finish chapter 9 and start chapter 10, all the previous nine chapters that we've seen in human history will only be the title page and the table of contents because the 10th chapter never ends. Think of the power that comes with the idea of going home. I was thinking about homecoming images. Images of people being reunited. I get choked up on this, I'm sorry. Images of people who hadn't seen each other in years, sometimes mothers and sons or people who've been sick and haven't had access. We've seen the images of soldiers, men and women, returning from war, Afghanistan, Iraq, even their pets going berserk to be home. This, one of the most famous images in all of American history on Victory in Japan Day, VJ Day, when all the man could think of the sailor there in Times Square was, give me somebody to hug, I'm home. North and South Koreans being reunited after 50 years of separation. And who hasn't seen the images of nursing home patients separated by the coronavirus who finally get to see each other again? What I want you to recognize in all these images is that chapter 10 of our story, the universe is pregnant with chapter 10. Chapter 10 of our story, which is about to happen, is a chapter of going home to God. Home at last. 
home at last. And that makes my story, the story of us, your story, the greatest love story ever told. God loved you enough to give birth to you, and then he loved you enough to chase you down to the four corners of the earth in order to bring you home. And he's going to do it. Philip Yancey tells a story in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. It's a true story, but he doesn't give the name. I'm going to use the name Kim. Kim grew up in Traverse City, Michigan, to a Christian home, in a Christian home. She found it to be restrictive, and she rebelled against it, and by the time she was a teenager, she ran away. She ran to Detroit, and in Detroit, she started hanging around with friends and found one friend to have a special interest in her, a male. He had gold rings and a very expensive car and seemed to live a lavish lifestyle, and he befriended her very quickly. And, of course, you, you know the story. You know why. I, I'm not going to say it. But he was using her. He was selling her. At first, she, was, she enjoyed the fact that she was getting so much attention, and the money was awesome. More money she'd ever seen. Till the first time she got sick and explained to her, quote, friend that she couldn't work, and he beat her almost to the point of death and said, you will work whether you're sick or not. Soon she found herself on the street, a heroin addict. Um, the money was drying up, and her life was totally in shambles. These were the days before cell phones but one night as she lay on the streets of Detroit over a grate, because that was the only warm place she could find, it dawned on her that her dog at home in Traverse City was better off than she is. And she mustered all the courage she could find and went to a payphone and decided to call home and ask if she could come home. She placed a call and no one answered. She waited a while and then she called a second time. No one answered. She waited several more hours and called a third time, and no one answered. So she decided to leave a voicemail. The message was, Mom, Dad, it's me. And I was just wondering if there's any way you'll let me come home. She said, I'm, I'm taking a bus from Detroit to Traverse City. It will get there about midnight tomorrow night. When I get off the bus... If you're not there at the bus station, I'll go on. I'll understand. And she hung up. She got on the bus. It's a seven-hour bus ride from, Traverse, from Detroit to Traverse City, and her mind was going through all the, the possible ways this could end. She really didn't expect anyone to be there. For all she knew, the family had not even heard the voicemail. When they pulled up in Traverse City, the bus driver turned around and said, there's a 15 minute break before we keep going. She had 15 minutes to see how the rest of her life was going to turn out. When she stepped off the bus, there was a banner hanging over the bus station. Welcome home, Kim. And underneath it, 40 or 50 people, brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and friends from high school and even people she never knew. And suddenly, pushing through the crowd was a guy not too far from my age who was sobbing. It was her dad. 
And as he began to throw his arms around her, she stopped him to explain how sorry she was. And he said, no, no, we don't have time for that. There's a party waiting for you at home. We got to get moving. Looking her in the eyes, he says to her these words, welcome home, Kim. That's our story. God raised us right, but we rebelled. But because of his immense love for us, he has determined he's going to get us home one way or another. The universe is pregnant with chapter 10. It's about to happen. Fix your eyes on where you know you're going to be. And very soon we're going to hear him say those words to us. Welcome home. This is my story. Let's stand up and sing.